This is Life with Alcohol and Drugs, a podcast from the charity Scottish Families Affected by Alcohol and Drugs. This is episode two, Bereavement Counselling Myths with Martha Ray and Jill Harmon from Scottish Families and counsellor Margaret Livingston. Martha, Jill and Margaret talk about different styles of counselling, what to expect from bereavement counselling and a bit about the Scottish Families National Bereavement Group and Service. Hello everyone. Hello. Hi. So myself um, and Jill from Scottish Families, um, affected by alcohol and drugs, and we both work through our bereavement service and our telehealth service. And we are joined today by Margaret Livingston from Margaret Livingston Counselling and Training. Um, Margaret is one of the counsellors on our network of counsellors who delivers um, bereavement and general counselling for us. Um, So thank you very much for joining us, Margaret. My pleasure, Martha and Jill. So the point of today is really just to have a chat about counselling, what people can, what the benefits of counselling are. And we're hoping to kind of, I suppose, break down some of the barriers that people might have about accessing counselling. Personally, I think the idea of counselling can be quite scary for people. Um, We don't know what to expect. We've got this kind of image, I think, we spoke about this before of you know sitting on a couch not facing a counsellor and talking about your deep dark secrets um so really it's just we thought it might be helpful to have a chat about the reality of counselling and what you can expect and the benefits who's both up for that yes excellent Margaret what's how long have you been a counsellor for what's been I uh, have been a counsellor qualified in 2009 how many years ago is that I'm looking at the date was that 12 years ago um started practicing so during your training you start practicing working with clients uh, so that would have been in 2007 and I've worked in various organizations um then I bridged employment with self-employment and then I've been self-employed in private practice fully since 2018 and I've worked in a variety of places um substance issues family organizations uh, in high school a few different charities so working with young people but predominantly clients and uh, adult clients and some couples uh, in different environments coming with a whole host of different issues. Do you have a kind of specific focus on issues that you work with or is it any issues that someone might come to you with? I found any issues there are some issues which maybe uh, require some specialist intervention most things might find so a client might say they're coming with anxiety and so I work with them and what their experience of their anxiety is but something else might come in it might they might then discuss multiple multiple traumas of experience mm-hmm. and uh, they might wish specific uh, trauma intervention so you know there's different interventions specifically to revisit the trauma EMDR is one, so I don't practice that. So I might work with them and then I might refer them to a specialist uh, service. Or if someone came with a, an eating disorder but required a, you know, a dietitian or nutritionist to be working alongside them, then they would go somewhere else for that. But I don't um, say I don't work with X, Y or Z, but it just depends what the client brings. And if they might need some, some someone else with a different set of skills to me then we would talk about that and I would help them transition to that other service. Yeah 
That's really good because I often think it's really important to recognise what you can help somebody with and what is out with your expertise. So mm-hmm. it sounds really good, you know, that you're able to, to speak with them and pass them over as well and refer on. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Obviously, for the purpose of this, we're going to be talking mainly about our bereavement service. Yeah. Um, so for anyone who is listening and don't, doesn't know about our bereavement service, we it's really open for anybody who has lost somebody following substance use. Um, we try not to make it too limited and making it as accessible as possible. Um, so it's really for anyone who has lost someone who's had a relationship, you know, a kind of prob- problematic relationship with alcohol or drugs Mm -hmm. um you know so it doesn't necessarily need to be that the person has died from a drug overdose for instance but if they've had a history of of using alcohol and drugs and really the reason for that service is because quite often we're not just dealing with the immediate loss of that person um people are, are often dealing with the kind of difficulties of the relationship that they had with the person before they they died. Um, some sometimes it's around the difficulty trying to understand what why they use drugs in the first place. So there's often quite a lot of trauma caused from supporting a loved one who's been using alcohol or drugs. And really, that's why we have such a kind of specific service because it's often not just bereavement counselling um, that that somebody is coming forward for. It's often you know for, for things that have happened before that as well. Yeah. Um, Margaret, you've obviously got a lot of experience working with with our clients as well. What would you say are the kind of things that people come to you with through our service? Yeah, um, they've got the the clients um, may have really conflicting emotions, and they, they can't understand that they might feel guilty and sad, or they're angry, or or some may, may feel relief as well, and then the guilt follows on with that. So these emotions that can run alongside each other in someone, but, but they can't understand them. They, they feel that they're a conflict and the two can't go together, but they do. Um, sometimes uh, clients never got to say goodbye because it's been a sudden ending and that causes a lot of distress for them. And there's a way that we can work together to for what they might have wanted to say to the person that they've lost and who's died. So that's something that, that, that comes along. There's... They may have a much more predictable life. So say there was complications with the relationship with the person whilst they were alive. Um, and now there's less complications, life's more predictable, um, but they're not happy with that predictability. And uh, because the pain of the loss is so huge for them that that they're still in that. And what I would say is that that grief is a very natural process however in the natural order of life you know if a parent loses a child or child dies they don't expect that or if it's a sudden death and it's a substance misuse or there's been suicide or or murder that interrupts our natural grieving process and people might just get stuck so depending on how soon or not after the death they come they may still be stuck in their grief and not have found a way to adapt to life to live without the person so a lot of the work the main part of the work is how do you adapt it's not about recovering from something uh, you don't recover from losing someone that you love intensely but it's how do you adapt and still manage your life mm-hmm. and, and definitely some joy within your life 
Yes, yeah. and you can justify it, can't you? If it's when it's your ninety-eight-year-old granny who's died, you can justify that to yourself. There's comfort in that, you know. It's there's yeah. a, there's a process that you expect with that in grief that you know she's had a good life. There's there's only you know I'm using that from my own experience. If, yeah. yeah, if you're still sad, grief is still very much apparent, but it's you expect it. Yes, you can, and you know that that was to be expected at some point. Whereas if it's as you say, if it's a parent losing a child, it instantly interrupts that kind of natural yeah. process, as you say. Yeah, and grieving for uh, what will not happen in the future, you know, mm. the, what you believed it would be in the future, mm. like celebrating other birthdays or marriages or as a parent maybe getting a, a grandchild, whatever, whatever the, the future celebrations might have been that you expected to have yeah. uh, with your child or or whatever other relative it is, if, if, if you perceive the relative has died suddenly and early in their life and what you anticipated, yeah. I think as well, certainly when we're speaking to people, I don't know if you've had this experience as well, Jill, but, you know, when whenever somebody comes through our bereavement service, we, myself or Jill, will always call them first to kind of just check in, see how they are, have, you know, have a chat about what their preferences are in terms of counselling or counsellor, if it's a male or female counsellor, anything like that. We try not to use the word assessment, but we have a chat about where they're at and what they're looking for. Is it support or is it counselling? You know, um, and we'll hopefully chat a little bit about the difference of those in a wee bit. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's we're just I suppose we're trying to make the whole process into counselling easier for people. Because I think there's still, as I said, there's still a lot of misconceptions around what counselling is. Yeah, I would say that a lot of the time people maybe don't even know themselves whether they're ready for counselling. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, I know that we would be having a conversation with them to say, why not even let us set you up with one session with the counsellor? Mm-hmm. And you see how you see how that goes. And then you decide whether you want to take that forward or whether you maybe aren't feeling that you're in the right place and mm-hmm. and you know you can come back to it if you do feel then, you know, that you're maybe ready at a different time. And I think that that's just really important, just having that option for people to be able to explore that themselves with a counsellor. And a a client, so I've experienced both that maybe a client said, I'm not sure if I'm ready. And we've had uh, a session to explore that. And then the client determined she, she was ready and we could continue with the sessions. And also on the flip of that, um, someone who wanted to engage in counselling and then uh, maybe just feeling at that particular, uh, I think it was maybe the second session, feeling it's maybe too much just now. I thought I was okay with this, but actually it's not and I will return to it. And that was maybe determined with other, fa- other stuff that was going on in their life at that moment. And I think it's important to know who else is around the client. You know, so what support networks do they have in place and who have they got and what, what's life looking for them before they start uncovering, you know, different emotions and um, engaging. Because counselling, the aim is that, that you will, something will happen by the end of it, whether you have more clarity or there's more acceptance, forgiveness, self-awareness, whatever, whatever it is that you're working with. Mm-hmm. But it can be tough during the process. Um, and you want to make sure that the the client is robust enough, I suppose, to engage in the counselling process, and uh, and knows that it may not just be a, a very smooth, straight road. Yeah. But there can be really beneficial outcomes. And that's something I think I always say to people is that, you know, the first 
first, second, third session, sometimes you might not come out of that feeling better because you're, mm-hmm. we don't, we're human beings, we try to avoid the discomfort, we try to avoid upset as human beings, you know, yeah. the pursuit of happiness doesn't allow us to dig into those sad things sometimes, and I think that can be really, you know, and actually counselling is asking you to do that, it's asking you to open up that, the box that you've kept kind of covered or, yeah. you know, because just to do that, you need to unpack it a little bit. And I think, you know, certainly my understanding of counselling is that it's doing it safely. Yeah. So that when you're unpacking that, you're doing it. You're not just taking the lid off, shaking everything yeah. out and surrounding. <laughs> you know, it's you're, you're doing it in a kind of safe way with somebody who knows how to help you yeah. contain that. In a contain safe it. Way. Yeah, absolutely. Contain it. And looking at something a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. rather than like pull everything out and look at it fully so it just might be in, in different stages yeah. to look at something and looking a little bit deeper and uh, I you know do not uh, force any client to speak about something that they don't want to so I'm a person-centered counsellor and that is non-directive approach it doesn't mean it's without challenge it's yeah I challenge clients there's challenge in the counselling process uh, but I'm not asking a client to talk about some something or go somewhere that they don't want to. So I'm, I'm beside them and safely working with them to, to explore whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In your experience, Margaret, what are the kind of main benefits of, of bereavement counselling if we're looking specifically at bereavement counselling for people? What can people hope to get out of that experience? First of all, um, I would hope that the experience, it's a an environment that feels safe to them, that they can trust uh, who they're working with and uh, be open about their feelings and these conflicted feelings that I'm saying that they might feel relief, guilt, anger, sadness. Often clients will say to me as well, um, I don't know if this is normal to feel this way. And, you know, we could pull apart the definition of what's normal and what's not for the next hour. Uh, But when they know that, so there's different, we might look at some of the grief models or theories that actually feeling this way or that way is okay. And it's okay uh, if, they, if they feel that way for another however long, there's no time limit to it. Yeah. Um, it just takes a bit of pressure off because they may hear from, and the clients have said this to me, that they may hear from others, oh, well, such and such a time has passed, so you should feel this way. So this is people that are uh, have good intentions, I suppose, people that care for them and love them and don't want to see them distressed or really sad. Yeah. And they say, well, it's been this long or that long, so I didn't think you would be feeling this way anymore. And actually, it's just to take all of that pressure away that you ought to feel a particular way at a particular time yeah. and just to work through the different emotions, to name them. Uh, it's, it's Ultimately, it's to... The hard work is adapting. So how can this person adapt to life without the person that will have been in it, physically been in the world any longer? Yeah, and I think that's it because, and I really like that word pressure because it's something, again, that we probably hear quite a lot is this, you know, I feel like I should be feeling better than this, that, you know, um, spoke to someone relatively recently who's, the, the bereavement was five years ago, and she said, I feel like I should be feeling better by now. What's, you know, why am I not? Why am I? you know everyone keeps telling me I should have moved on and she she'd done a bit of research into the st- stages of grief and she's like I don't feel like I've been through all of those yet why haven't you know mm-hmm. and I was trying to explain to her that while theories are really useful I think you know and yes you know the Kubler-Ross model of the five st- stages of grief 
it's useful to know that those feelings might come up at some point for people, but actually it's not necessarily that you will do it in that kind of linear process. We're human beings. I don't know anyone who totally processes information in the exact same way. Yeah, um, yeah. And there might be some clients who, uh, when they experience grief, really busy themselves, you know, in life. So they are in, if looking at one of the uh, models, so they might be in the restoration phase where they're really busy with life and getting on with life and they don't uh, spend enough time acknowledging their grief or acknowledging the different emotions that they may be feeling. So very busy, busy, busy. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side of that, there may be some clients who feel quite stuck in their grief and they haven't managed to adapt. So you would be helping clients identify the diff- where they're at and the different ways that they might want to consider, which might help. And it's not to rush them anywhere, but it's just to notice where they're at and to, to discuss that, why they're there, and, and might they spend some time, because some folk are scared of their grief. They think they'll be too overwhelmed and too distressed, and some clients report that they're scared to cry. They might think that if they start crying, they'll never stop. They're going to stop, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you picked up on that though, Margaret, there about the kind of time and busying yourself in that restoration phase. Because what I would say is, you know, certainly I've had quite a lot of calls with people during the pandemic who mm-hmm. thought that they had, you know, just thrown themselves into work or other commitments and busied themselves. And now it's maybe, you know, 10 years down the line since the, the loss of their loved one. Mm-hmm. And they're only now realising that actually they feel that counselling would be a bit of benefit to them because they have so much more time on their hands and Mm -hmm. very little um, activity to kind of keep them busy. So that's, it's kind of brought it out for them. There's been quite a number of calls with that. So it's, it's really interesting to hear about that, you know, Mm -hmm. aspect of busying yourself as well at this time where it's not as possible. Yeah. Yeah. The distractions aren't as available Mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in, you know, I'm a talker. I think you'll probably, you'll both know this about me already, but for me, if I'm holding on to something, it's only me that's dealing with that. I've got, you know, if it's, if I'm holding on to something, an an ill feeling of any kind, you know, and I think grief's probably a a complicated Mm -hmm. experience for anyone. I think if you're holding on to, if you're keeping that in the box, the lid's on, that box just gets heavier and heavier because you've never looked at it, you've never opened it, you've never actually dealt with it. You can ignore it, you can pretend it's not happening, you can keep yourself busy. I'm just not, you know, I'm just going to leave that behind me. But eventually that starts spilling over, I think, in other in other ways. You know, so I've, I've always been a kind of advocate, I suppose, for sorting through that stuff. Mm-hmm. it's like the drawer in the kitchen that I think everyone has of oh I don't really know what to do with this I'll shove it in that box I'll shove it in the drawer keep the drawer closed and I won't deal with it and eventually that that drawer gets too full because you're not dealing with anything in it <laughs> and you yeah. have to have a big sort out and you know where actually it can be helpful just to sort through those things yeah absolutely because it's still there the drawer's still there whether you choose to open it or not yeah. it's, no, it's you know it's still in disarray so yeah. if something happens or someone else opens the drawer, you're triggered by something, yeah. then you're seeing the drawer even when you didn't want to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it would be helpful as well just to kind of, what is the process? So, you know, so if I, for instance, I think as I, as I kind of mentioned earlier, in terms of our service, you know, if someone f- would contact the helpline or have a third party referral that comes through to us, 
um, from that we would myself or Jill would give that person a phone Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of check in with them see what's happening we would then pass on their information with with their permission onto one of our counsellors like yourself for instance what would happen then what would people expect so once you've got their information what what do you do with it and how does it work so once that information's passed to me um you would know usually on it if they could be contacted uh, email or telephone and if you could leave a message or not so i would use the information that you've given me to make contact at the the best time for the client and uh i would make that contact and have an initial chat with them and just introduce myself um talk a little bit about counselling and uh, hopefully agree the first session. If they feel comfortable in that initial chat with me, then would agree when the first session would start. So that wouldn't be the first session, that would be this introductory call to, yeah. to see who I am and what you've agreed, how many sessions you've agreed and, and what they can expect. And then we'd agree the first date and session. Yeah, I think that's really important as well, that initial phone call, because Certainly, again, from my experience, there's this term clickability with a counsellor. And I think it's really important because, again, we're all different. We all process information differently. And if you're trying to unpack the kitchen drawer that you don't want to you don't want to open, you want to be doing that with someone who you feel safe with, who you feel comfortable with. So that initial kind of contact must be really important, I imagine, to see if that relationship is there to see if that's going to be a safe place for you to do that unpacking Mm -hmm. absolutely and it usually is just a brief call it's not a full session it's brief but um you would hope that the client would get a a sense of who you are and uh, if they're able to relate to you and and yeah and start opening the drawer with you which they might they might not know it in that uh brief call but they would know it fairly quickly would imagine when you start the full sessions together yeah yeah at the moment it would be via zoom or telephone because it's just because of the pandemic are still not working face to face and the sessions are just under an hour they're about 50 minutes and usually weekly but that that is also determined by the client's availability and what other commitments they might have it could be a day or you know morning afternoon or evening depending on their availability too it's really important that um the client has like a private space. So um, I have worked with some clients who are maybe sitting in their car or they've went a walk or because the house is too busy so they wouldn't get the private space so it would limit what they were able to see. So yeah. their private space might actually be outside. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, the best is done to accommodate their availability and their privacy. Mm-hmm. The majority of clients that I'm working with are... It's via Zoom actually at the moment rather than telephone. And I just wonder if the world's been introduced to Zoom or these online platforms. I'm not promoting Zoom, by the way, but these <laughs> online platforms because of the well, pandemic. Are available. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, they say, oh, I've been using Zoom for my work. I've been using Zoom to chat with my friends and I've been using Zoom yeah. for so. Everything's yeah. moved online, hasn't it? Which can. Muddy the waters a little bit, I think, but it's... I think definitely people are more comfortable with video call. I know even myself, if somebody had put me in front of a video call, you know, in February of 2020, I'd been like, oh, no, I can't do it. I don't want to. And that's something I often say to people as well, you know, is maybe even have one session over the phone, meet up with the counsellor, and then you and the counsellor can decide if you want to move on to 
the video call. Um, and I suppose as well, just trying to promote that it's really helpful whenever you can see the mm-hmm. client as well, because, you know, you can pick up on facial expression and body language and, mm-hmm. and things Lots that you just don't get. Yeah, it's just that bit more yeah. connection that you don't get over the phone yeah. as well. I do have uh, like good experience of telephone counselling as well with clients. And what I'll do is fill in the gaps so they might not be able to see my face. I always describe where I'm sitting for a start. I'll say, I'm at home, I'm in my counselling room, there's no one else in the house, uh, it's a private space, uh, I'm in Glasgow. Uh, just so they know where I am and how private a space it is, because they don't know where I am or if, who's around. So I, I, I give them that assurance. But also I'll fill in the gaps if they don't see how I may be reacting. So I might tell them, oh, I'm aware that I'm smiling as you say that, because they would have been able to see me smiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they were on this link with me. Yeah. So if they can't, if I'm aware that I've responded in some way and I'm saying I'm aware that I'm smiling when you mention whoever it is. So it's almost your audio description of kind of what's <laughs> happening a wee bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I try and fill in the blanks that they might not have access to as much as I can. You know? yeah. yeah, That sounds really helpful, Margaret. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned previously as well, Margaret, that you're a person-centred counsellor. Yeah. Would you be able to talk to us a bit about, you know, because quite often we'll be asked about the difference between CBT, psychodynamic, you know, um, person-centred, integrative, which seems to be coming up more as well with counsellors. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I'll, give, I'll give you my take on it and apologies to all the, uh, the different modalities if I get any of the lines. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm person-centred, so I can talk more about that, but I won't. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about all of them. So... I suppose, I mean, there's so many uh, therapies, if you think about it, if you were to Google it, there'll be, if we start at the beginning of the alphabet, you know, there'll be art therapy, there'll be behavioural therapies, and then cognitive behavioural therapy, and if you just keep going down, there's transaction analysis, person-centred approaches, psychodynamic, psychoanalysis, and gestalt. So people might, internal family systems, there's so many, ecotherapy, you know, so people might get lost and say, what does this mean? Um, ultimately, I would hope that uh, a client knows that uh, it's a space that will they'll be held in and contained and they, they feel safe to explore. But they may experience it differently depending on the modality of the, the counsellor or uh, psychotherapist that they go and yeah. see, depending on their training and also their style. So I mentioned that I'm person-centred. But, but that's a continuum, if you like, and I'm not classically person-centred. So I might describe myself as eclectic. So there's another word to throw into the mix where that's my core training, but I might pick on uh, some resources or techniques that I've learned from other, uh, from uh, training, further training. Mm-hmm. Integrative is someone might have trained in like the three main uh, modalities, if you like, of psychodynamic, uh, behavioural and humanistic. Mm-hmm. So the the integrative training would have been a whole combination of those. And uh, the I'll, I'll split them up a bit. So if we think about um, psychodynamic approach, so most people, if you ask them uh, anything about talking therapy or counselling, they would probably know or heard of Freud or Sigmund Freud and. Yeah. And that's when we maybe have the image of someone lying in a sofa 
and there's no eye contact and you know the psychoanalyst is behind and um and it if you were to work with someone from a psychodynamic approach there may be um some focus on childhood experiences you know early years relationships with uh, caregivers mm-hmm. um there and how that impacts today so there may be uh you know let's revisit uh, your early years and see how it determines how you are today mm-hmm. um there there may be some dream exploration because there's like the, how the unconscious in is finds its way out and plays into our conscious behaviours and how we are. on dreams, wasn't he? Yes, yes. So <laughs> I think, yeah, the Royal Roads, you know, to the unconscious. So so there yeah. might be some. So I, I don't I don't practice in that way. So um but there may be some some work around that. Some of the language might be uh, you know, that some people might read a, a psychodynamic uh, biography if they were going to work with them and it might talk about they'd work with the the id and the ego and the superego and there might be some work on how attachment theory has played a part and how we attach in adult relationships and how we attach in early childhood so but ultimately it's it's talking therapy you know it's sitting with someone via zoom or phone and it's working things out but they might ask about early relationships Um, CBT, or cognitive behavioural therapy, is probably one of the, the younger schools from the behaviour uh, therapy model. And that would be um, focusing on, so say there's a, a situation that triggers what, what happens. So physiologically, what's going on? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And how are you behaving? Yeah. And it might be that uh, some of the language might be that there's automatic negative thought process with some clients. So I'll give you an example. Um, if this door chat, if we weren't in a pandemic and this door chat and somebody's coming to visit me that hasn't visited me for a while, I might think, oh gosh, there's three towels down the stair in the living room and the couch that I haven't brought upstairs. I've got dishes in the kitchen. So that that's that's the reality. But uh, I might then think this person who's visiting will think that I am lazy or I can't cope or something. So I might go to there, you know, and there's a whole set of core beliefs that might be challenged by the therapist. Do they still fit today? Are they still your reality today? Because they might have carried these core beliefs for a long time and they just may not fit. Yeah. Yeah. Am I right in saying with CBT, there tends to be a bit more kind of paperwork almost you know there's kind of yeah working through a situation or, or a kind of presenting issue yeah so there might be an agenda you mm-hmm. know and uh following through with that agenda and some structure of how you might work with that mm-hmm. it could be some homework you know so um following on from whatever the agenda was and whatever work you were carrying out it's in collaboration with the, the client yeah um, so uh, this work might need to be done because that then follow on to what you're working on in the following session. Um, yeah. It might be keeping a mid diary or noting down triggers when you've experienced something, and that will inform and I suppose and be helpful for the future session. Yeah. And I suppose the idea is 
if we change, you know, these automatic negative thoughts, if we can change our thought process, ultimately it's going to affect how we behave and how we feel. I can see how that would potentially work for bereavement, particularly as well, mm-hmm. because there are maybe some automatic thoughts that are happening for people mm-hmm. through that bereavement through. So you can see how that, that might be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And um and the humanistic approaches of person-centered as being how I practice an emotion-focused therapy. Uh, that's really looking at the the client's experience of their own world and uh, the, the, the counselor or therapist not um believing that they know better that how that the client can live in that world and really um getting a sense of what's your reality like unpacking it and exploring it being beside them to do that raising self-awareness gaining new insight um really getting to know what it's like to be you to live in your world as you yeah so the counselor's not the expert in their life the the client is the expert and the counselor's just there to kind of guide yeah be with them and uncover things together with them um yeah and there's uh, I suppose um, there's each of them could be critiqued by the others. I think there's value in all of them. Yeah. Um, so person-centered is a is a real it's a hopeful approach. You know, it really believes that as human beings, we've all got the capacity for growth and to change. And um, so some of the other uh, modalities may think, that, and we offer the core conditions of empathy and acceptance and congruence, and it's. Um, well, we all offer that is what they might say, but it's not enough. So yeah. the other, and as well as that, we have to do this, or we have this technique, or or this direction, or. And am I right? Because just for if anyone does want to look into this further, there's some great videos on YouTube. Um, is it Gloria? There is Gloria. Now they're they're quite old, you know, they're right. quite dated. But yes, that that Gloria does have interviews, you know. So if they just put the Gloria videos that, that she has interviews with the different modalities if you like and and how she experiences um yeah. being in that session so I, I remember watching those a while ago and think and it, yeah. I think they just they do show the kind of difference I suppose yes. of, the, of the different yeah how the counselor I suppose um yeah. interacts yeah so and I suppose in brief terms psychodynamic may spend some time in the early years and how it impacts you today and CBT is mostly less interested in that and more about is that what's going on today and what techniques could be put in place to change that so it doesn't have such a negative impact on you mm-hmm. and humanistic is what's your world like and let's uncover it and work out what's best for you thank you for that the other I suppose the other thing that we often talk about is the difference between support and counselling mm-hmm. um so at Scottish Families we offer support for people yeah. who have um experienced a bereavement that's maybe I suppose the way that we kind of see it is that's maybe before someone's ready for counselling. It can be sometimes after they've been for counselling, but they still need somebody just to kind of offload to, maybe have a space to, to talk. Um, just a space like, to speak about their loved one, isn't it? Quite often um, people maybe, you know, feel that whenever they're bereaved in substance misuse, of whether it's drugs or alcohol, has been a factor that I suppose you know, they might actually have quite a lot of stigma around that passing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they might not actually have told people, like, the truth. 
Um, so sometimes I think it is about almost having that safe space that they can just speak about, you know, their loved one or even just the circumstances around without judging as well. Yeah, yeah. But we're obviously very clear that we are not trained counsellors and it is, it is, I suppose, looking at, you know, what what is that difference then between support and counselling? Yeah. Um, I think my definition would be that, um, well, counselling is a longer process, possibly, where you're uncovering different layers and you're building up really the that one-to-one relationship and mm-hmm. trust is building up. And I don't mean if, if you're offering support regularly, then of course you'll be doing that too. Um, there's, I suppose, there's maybe different boundaries in place and different uh, ethics to consider. And, yeah. you know, offering support maybe doesn't have to consider the same sort of boundaries, a confidentiality process or ethics. I suppose you'd look at what is, if I'm offering support, what does it look like and what are we bound by? And yeah. describe that to the... I see support as well. When I, if I need support, I might need it for. It's not always linked to my emotional well-being. I might need some practical support. Yeah. Uh, I might just need someone yeah, to listen to me. I might need financial support. So it's not the word support is not always linked to emotional well-being. I suppose firstly. Um, and certainly, we would certainly signpost people during that support period. Mm-hmm. We would signpost, we'd maybe give them information that they need about the, as you say, the kind of practical considerations following a death or, yes. you know, so we could maybe offer that support. Whereas my understanding, I suppose, is that counselling goes in and certainly from someone who's delivering support and not counselling mm-hmm. is often it's some, if someone says to me about a way that they're feeling, I don't feel like I necessarily have the skills to safely Mm -hmm. help them unpack that Mm -hmm. or I don't you know I don't feel like I have the right or maybe I don't have the confidence I suppose to have the right response to that initial feeling and and I think that's you know for me certainly the counselling process is just slightly deeper than support it's going Mm -hmm. as you say it's it's much more focused on the emotion of it but it's for me there's a there's a depth and the the client might only want support and not want to unpack, not want to open that drawer, yeah. but wants to talk about all around that kitchen cutlery drawer or whatever. Yeah. And that's still going to be helpful to them in that moment. Yeah. Or they might want support when, when there's a crisis. I don't know. I, I need something and uh, I'm not quite sure what it is. I need to know information about that. I'm, I'm thinking about maybe some clients that contact you that maybe don't understand when they'll get toxicology reports, for instance, or and they might need some sort of information to help with that, and that yeah. might reduce some distress within them. Yeah. For me as well, mm-hmm. counselling, and I think you kind of said this at the beginning of this chat, Mark, that counselling to me suggests change in some way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so some kind of movement in how we feel, whereas support, I think, sometimes can be more surface in terms of, sometimes they just want to talk about their loved one, what they were like, who they were, you know, um, and that's fine. And I think that can be really beneficial for people. But mm-hmm. for me, counselling goes into, I suppose, where I'm talking about depth, I mean more, I feel like there's a change in how someone maybe feels by the end of a counselling process, whereas support, sometimes the person can stay the same, mm-hmm. but they've had an opportunity to offload. They've, you know, so. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, maybe going back to the question that you asked about, you know, what can folk expect from counselling or what might or, or add to that, what outcomes might be? It could be more self-awareness. So it, you can consider this might happen when you're offering support, but more self-awareness, more acceptance of self or someone else, forgiveness, um, compassion. They might be able to regulate their emotions better mm -hmm. and identify triggers of what happens and what triggers them into emotional dysregulation and work that out, how to know they make new strategies to cope with anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's a whole host of things um, so that might have changed or they have, they feel more resourceful because they've got yeah. more knowledge, more awareness. And when they're met with an issue, they're able to respond to it differently. So something would have changed, you know, their capacity might have changed to respond to adversity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that definitely comes from what you were saying earlier as well about people. Sometimes we need to know the answers. We, you know, I think people, you know, is this normal? Is it normal that I feel like this? And sometimes just having yes, that, you know, and I think back to kind of what you were mentioning, Jill, as well, is when someone particularly, unfortunately, stigma around alcohol and drug use is still massive. It's still massive for family members who are impacted by it, even if they're not using alcohol and drugs themselves. You know, so stigma has, has and will continue, unfortunately, for some time, you know, so it's how we kind of navigate that as um, individuals and as a service as well, I think. But certainly I've spoke to an, a huge amount of people who have said, you know, things about, you know, they've lied, for instance, when people have asked them why their loved ones died, how they've died, you know, and there's something around the kind of, you know, so a, a lady that I spoke to some time ago, her son, she told, she told everyone her son died in a car crash. And she said, and actually it's really interesting, the words that she used is, I feel there's more honour in that. Yeah. I feel there's more honour in, in, you know, dying of a heart attack or in a car crash yeah. than there is. And, she said, you know, I, she didn't feel like that, but that's how she felt other people would see that, that other people would feel more sorry for her. She said, she, I remember she said that her, she could see on people's faces when she told them that her son had died of drug use, <coughs> that the empathy left, you yeah. know, and it's suddenly this kind of, they're faced with, well, what did you expect? Or, you know, and I think that can be really challenging for people. So often in that space, whether it's through counselling, whether it's through support, whether it's through peer support, mm -hmm. as, as you said, Jill, having that space where people can talk yeah, and be honest, safe. Quite, yeah. yeah, without judgment. about their feelings, without yeah, yeah. judgment, definitely. Yeah, that's come up in counselling sessions too, um, where clients have described that to me, that uh, they're uncomfortable because they don't know what they're going to be met with if they, they said the reason that their relative had died, you know, mm -hmm. that, that they're uncomfortable with, they're expecting to be met with judgment, uh, less compassion um, than if they, they had said, oh, my son had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. um, That's really isolating, I imagine. It's really, really, really isn't it, in this, uh, that, that it's still happening, that they're still experiencing so much stigma. And Especially when we look at alcohol and drug use and it's the most undiscriminatory thing in the world. It's not a type of person, you know, and again, that's something families will say to me, you know, we're not the type of family that has alcohol or drug use. And, yeah. you know, so they're, they've even got that stigma themselves. Yeah. And what I always say to them is, what is the type of person that does? Because I don't know. There is no specific type. Religion, you know, class. I think it, it 
it's so undiscriminatory, you know, Absolutely. problematic substance use that it touches every mm-hmm. ev- everyone. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah, of life. of Scotland, I imagine we most families have either a close connection or a kind of direct connection to somebody who mm-hmm. has an issue with alcohol or drugs. Yeah. Just as well, just to kind of update a little bit. So we've been talking a little bit about the kind of peer support side of things as well. And Margaret's, um, we're very pleased that Margaret's agreed to kind of help us out with this. The next stage of the Scottish Families kind of support, which is around our National Bereavement Group. Um, So this has been on the books for, how long have we been talking about this, Jill? Quite a while. Quite a while now. Um, but um, we are hoping to kind of get things moving as soon as possible um, with that. And it's really just to give up people that opportunity. We have, you know, across Scotland, we do have family support groups. We have places where people can go and talk about the loved one that they're currently supporting. There are some little pockets of, you know, really successful bereavement groups as well. But I think generally what we found is that there's, it's very much depends where you live and, um, even certain bereavement groups, you know, non-specific bereavement groups, people don't feel comfortable going in and talking about someone that they've lost as a result of substance use. Um, we've maybe had people that they go to a family support group and don't really want to talk about losing someone. They don't want to give the people in the group a loss of hope. They maybe don't feel comfortable listening to the family members in these groups kind of totally understandably having a moan about their loved one <laughs> or, uh, you know, or, or needing to offload. Yeah. Um, so it can be a really, because it's such a specific need, I think, you know, what we've established is that we want to give that a bit of space for people to be able to speak, to be able to speak openly without judgment to other people who have been in similar situations. Mm-hmm. Um as we said, this has been on the cards for some time. Um, I think initially we were very keen on having that as a physical group that people could travel to, that people could be sitting in a room together and actually talking about it. For me, there's something there about the connection of that. Mm-hmm. But I think as we spoke about at the beginning, where people are getting more of an appetite for online um, and Let's be honest, who knows when we're really going to be out of all of this and we're going to be allowed to have a physical group. Hug each other. (laughs) Um, So I think the idea is um, for us to move it online um, kind of hopefully sooner rather than later um, Mm -hmm. so that we can can start making those connections for people. So we're giving people that space to um, meet other people who have been in a similar Mm -hmm. situation. Um, So we are aiming... Within the next couple of months, I think. Is that fair, Jill? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we, that's our promise. <laughs> um, within the next couple of months, we are hoping to kind of have that established. Um, and so, you know, anyone who is listening and feels that that's something they would benefit from, they can contact us. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll be more information going out about it. And maybe... Um you know when you set the the theme or the idea for the first one then some of the family members who come along can uh, give some ideas maybe how they would like the next the next group to look like or if that format worked whether it's 
how formal and informal it will be, whether there's yeah. a, a talk or it's small meeting rooms online. Yeah. Um, maybe some of the family members can contribute to help and shape it. So it might not be the perfect shape right away. Yeah. have the perfect format, but it... And that's exactly what we're hoping. And I think with any of our groups, any of our services, you know, we, we look for as much feedback as we can get about anything, you know, because... We really like families to try and help us, help set the agenda that they want, because if it's not... If it's not, you know, singing to people, then they're not yeah. hearing it. Then, you know, there's just there's not much point, I suppose. Yeah. So, and I know certainly, I'm I'd much rather put our time into something that's helping people, mm-hmm. that's actually serving a purpose, mm-hmm. you know, rather than us making it up, putting something out there, and just hoping and we've, we've hit the mark for mm-hmm. people. Yeah. You know, so it's really useful for us to be able to work kind of collaboratively with the families that we're actually working with to. Um, to build a service and you know and the group absolutely be an example of that to build a a group that's actually going to be beneficial for Mm -hmm. the people at it watch watch this space on all our social media channels and things like that for more information on that Mm -hmm. Um, is there anything else that we think might be relevant for this conversation I'd just like to see that if someone's listening and they're not sure if counselling would be helpful or not to them uh, just to make contact with you and then you know this is no commitment so once they have this exploratory session they don't need to engage in counselling after that yeah but it's worth making the call if they think that you know if they're curious or they're not sure if there's a mate yeah yeah absolutely take that first step Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. and I think as I said I'm I'm a talker so I totally um a lot you know I think we can get a huge amount out of just making sense of the jumble that's sometimes in our head. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Not being alone with it, just sharing what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other benefit just on that kind of point, sharing it with somebody that isn't a loved one, isn't somebody that also has feelings around it, isn't somebody who knows the situation it's your perspective and that's all that's kind of important in that conversation which I think yeah that, so, that would have been helpful if I'd said that earlier probably actually and what they can expect or what what do clients bring I can't remember what, what what the question was but a lot of folk might say um that they have tentative or delicate conversations or no conversations around the person that has died with other family members because they're all looking out for each other and don't want to upset the other um filtering maybe conversations and this is a space where you don't need to be to filter or to think yeah you just bring what's going on for you and also I suppose they don't want you know I if I'm if I'm really upset about something I maybe don't want to tell my mum that I'm really upset about it because that's going to worry her that I'm yeah. really upset so suddenly I've put that on her she's sitting with it unfortunately my mum does get my mum is my main counsellor so she probably <laughs> does get most of it but um you know whereas a counsellor I suppose it's their job to hold that stuff for you and to and and because there is that there's not that kind of of course, there's a personal connection, but it's it's a professional personal connection yeah. so that you know that the counsellor's not going away and having sleepless nights, hopefully, about your, you know, so it's a safe place to put it. It's, yeah, you don't um, need to concern yourself about the counsellor, worry about them, filter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People are so often, you know, the strong one for other family members, mm-hmm. and then that is, it's, they need somebody to, to come 
and yeah. for them to be able to offload to and speak with. Mm-hmm. And what I suppose I would say on that, just picking up on, you know, different family members within the same household or, you know, with the same family member that they're, they've been, um, that they've lost. It's that, you know, any number of family members can get counselling from the service as well. Um, you know, and if they even want a different counsellor, mm-hmm. um, then that can be arranged. Yeah, and I think as well, that can be, especially when you've got multiple people impacted in the same household or in the same family, and people, we all deal with things differently, and that can be really frustrating for people because you've maybe got a husband and wife who, mm-hmm. you know, the the wife's maybe doesn't want to deal with it. I'm keeping myself busy, and the husband's sitting going, no, I need to talk about this, and that can be quite conflicting. So having those spaces separately to deal with it or to deal with it in your own way can be really yeah. helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much for your time today, Margaret. Um, and hopefully we have encouraged people who feel yeah. that it would be beneficial to, um, we'll even let you request Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for listening. If you're worried about someone else's alcohol and drug use, you can contact Scottish Families on 08080 1010 11 or by email at helpline at sfad.org.uk. We also have web chat and further information on our website www.sfad.org.uk.